Paul says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward the saints. Those two phrases. Your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Um, We're going to read Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. And as we start, he begins that prayer by giving thanks for two things. He says, I'm thankful that you have faith in Jesus and I'm thankful that you love one another. They're secured in Jesus by faith and that there is love permeating through them out into the world around them. Uh, And those two phrases capture the whole biblical enterprise, actually. And they actually capture the letter of Ephesians. I think it summarizes all of Christianity. Because here's it summarizes what God is doing and what He intends to do in His people. Because the argument of the Bible, this is, we're backing up, this is the 30,000 foot view, is this, that reality, all of it, is a system that God created. And systems have working pieces that all have to relate together appropriately in order to flourish. God's intention was that creation, all of reality, humanity, the physical world, everything was intended to flourish as a system. And systems flourish when everything relates to each other properly. But what y'all know, especially because this room is like half engineers and CS majors and mathematicians, is this. That if you throw a wrench into the system and break the relationship between two functioning things, it breaks the whole system. It grinds to a halt. It's frustrated. Dysfunction sets in. And so when, when man rebelled against God, the God who made him, and decided to operate within the system of reality, within creation according to our design, dysfunction broke in. And so now we experience brokenness in every realm of human experience. Physically, our bodies are broken. Politically, our systems are broken. Economically, spiritually, morally, intellectually, psychologically, and relationally, we experience, we all experience profound dysfunction. And uh, the story of Christianity is, is God bringing the world back together and healing by restoring the one relationship that frustrated everything. So by him sending Jesus and restoring the relationship between God and man, that was the fundamental relationship that brought dysfunction everywhere. And Paul is saying, I am so grateful that you have met Jesus and trusted him and been restored to God because that's the fundamental relationship that broke and brought dysfunction everywhere. And so now what's happening is, he's like, when you became connected to Jesus by faith, the next thing that happened is, instead of dysfunction, when you disconnected from God, dysfunction came into your life and went out into the world. Now that you're back restored with God, functionality is happening in your life, and it's actually emanating from you in the world. So that vertical relationship is restored, and now all of a sudden, what are they doing? I'm thankful that you have faith in Jesus and love toward the saints. They're moving out in the world. They're bringing functionality, healing, and restoration to the world around them. That's what Christianity is. That's what the, church of, uh, that's what the book of Ephesians is. The first three chapters or actually it's divided very evenly, about how God restores that relationship in the second three chapters, or about then how we work, out, work that out and bring that blessing into the world around us. So that's, that's our quarter. That's why we're doing this. Um, but I'm going to read here uh, the, Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus, and then we'll discuss it. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints... I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Here are his prayers for them. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope to which he called you, 
You'll know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and also what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray that He would teach us. Lord, when we read Paul's words, there's a lot of grammar and they're confusing to me and they need to be meaningful to us. And we want Your Word to transform us. We don't want to come here and have an interesting thought exercise and walk away and not be different. But we need Your Holy Spirit to attend to Your Word and those two things to work powerfully in our hearts. Let us be confronted by Your Word and comforted by Your Word. Be with us, dear God. We really need You. In Your name we pray. Amen. Um, So, our first starter home in St. Louis, uh, when we first did the American Dream, which is owning a house, which is more like an American nightmare, but you'll get there. You'll understand that one day. Um, There's... I think I thought there were two, but there are actually three kinds of people in the world. Because, um, you know, I know everything and can categorize everybody perfectly. That's always so arrogant. But there are people who can fix things, and there are people who can, can't fix things, but there's actually a third category. There are people who think they can fix things but can't. And what I found in our first starter home is I'm part of the third category. I was mistakenly placed myself in the first category. And the way that manifests itself is our washing machine broke. We bought this house. The washing machine came with it. It was old. And I was like, this is it. It's time to, like, be a man and, like, fix an appliance, right? Uh, which is pathetic. But um, So, anyways, it was leaking water. It wasn't washing clothes. I went down in the basement and I pulled this washing machine apart one Saturday morning. You know, it's a mess, I'm dirty, I'm bleeding, there's washing machine parts laid out meticulously. They have, there's really sharp metal in these appliances. Um, almost like a pint of blood. But um, I'm looking at it, I don't know anything about washing machines. And all I know is it's not cleaning stuff, and every time we turn it on, water comes out of the bottom into the floor of the basement. So I'm looking around, and there's like a corroded hose, and I'm like, well, obviously this needs a new hose. So I get the hose, I go to Home Depot, I get the replacement part, I come back. And this is, this is from 9 o'clock in the morning to like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I finally have the washing machine reassembled. You can see where this is going. Uh, with the new hose and all this kind of stuff, and turn it on, and nothing's changed. It doesn't wash clothes, and water's pouring out of the bottom. I take it all off again, take more things off, and then what I find out is I'd spent all day replacing the hose and find out the water's coming out of the pump at the bottom. Here's why I share that story. It actually, that story confronts me the way this letter confronts us. I thought I needed a new hose, but I needed a new pump. It's simply a story of not knowing what I needed. And Paul is screaming at us right here in his prayer. And he's saying in his prayer, he's telling us about what we really need. His heart is for the church at Ephesus. And he's saying, here's my prayer for you. And so we would do well to pay attention to what Paul thinks the church really needs and what Christians really need. And if we're not careful and we don't hear from him what it is we really need, what we'll do is we'll actually spend our entire life trying to replace the hose, trying to fix something and not end up actually dealing with what is really broken. 
Well, actually, in a lot of ways, what we'll do in life is we'll treat symptoms and never deal with the heart of the issue. Paul is screaming at us here, you need a new pump. That's really what he's saying. He's trying to tell us what our needs really are. And oftentimes, what we think we need is very, very different than what we thought we need. And so he starts, and I I want to make two points kind of before we get into the meat of this sermon, two brief points. He starts and he says... I do not sit, give thanks for you, or I do not cease giving thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. And then from there, verse seventeen on is the content of his prayer. Here's his prayer: that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. He is saying, "I wish God, I pray that He would make things known to you, that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would have wisdom and revelation from God about God." Now, what we all do, he's, he's saying something to us about our, our prayer lives right here that I think is really important and the way we think about how God speaks to us. And this is just a small point and we'll move on. And I know this is actually going to unsettle some of y'all, but the whole evidence of the Bible, the whole story of how God speaks to His people, because we're constantly asking God, God, make something known to us, right? You offer up decisions, you want guidance in certain areas, and you're saying, God... Tell me what to do, provide guidance, speak to me, make revelation. And that's Paul's prayer right here for the church at Ephesus. And Paul is saying this. What you need to know from God is not which internship you take. What you need to know from God is not who you should room with. It's not what fraternity you should join or student organization you should join. What you need to know from God is not the major you need to major in or what you should do next week with your time. That is not what God needs to reveal to you. What you need is the knowledge of God Himself. That's Paul's prayer. I hope that God gives you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And the way that you know that God is communicating something to you, if you're wondering, is this God speaking to me? Is He making something known to me? Is He revealing Himself to me? Is this. You can be sure it's God speaking if it's something that's about Him And it's confirmed in Scripture. It's how you know if you're hearing God speaking to you. Every single act of God's revelation, every time He reveals or speaks or makes something known, He's always making Himself known. That is the content of His revelation. And the implication is this, right? What everybody needs is to know God. Not a factual awareness of Him, but the biblical sense of knowing is deep relational intimacy. And what I want to contend tonight is that Paul prays that they would know these three things because a deep, imaginative grasp of these three things are actually what we need. And if we don't learn from Paul what we really need, we will spend our entire life trying to fix something that's not broken and never really understanding what needs to be fixed. And so he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ will give you spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. How? By having the hearts of, uh, by having the eyes of your heart enlightened. In Matthew six twenty two, Jesus says the eyes are the lamp of the body, and what He means by that is the eyes shine on something, and when they shine on something, that's what you're fixated on. Whatever your eyes, the, uh, the eyes of your heart are located on, that's where your heart is. And so what He's saying is, I hope God fixed the eyes of your heart that He will enlighten you to what you really need, because so often the eyes of our heart are actually fixated on other things we think we need, but in fact are not what we need. 
I pray that God would make Himself known to you, having the heart, eyes of your heart enlightened. I pray that God would cause your heart to begin. This is what He wants. For us to begin to long for and set our sights on the thing we really need, which is God Himself. So he's praying, I want you to know God more and your heart to realize knowing God more is everything. In Christianity, we think we meet Jesus at the cross, we meet God in the Bible, and then as life moves on, like I have all these other issues I need God to sort out for me. All these other kind of mundane life decisions that I need God to sort out for me. So we move on from enjoying Him and our spirituality and our Christian life then moves on to kind of God just organizing the demands of our life. And he's not in the business of that. In one sense, he kind of doesn't care about that. What Paul is saying, what you need is to know God more and more and more. And you see this, uh, in one sense, in marriages. What happens in healthy marriages are people, the reason they're healthy, the reason they're last, the reason they're 80-year-olds that have profound and beautiful marriages is because they've not ceased simply being fascinated with each other. Because they've realized it takes a whole lifetime to discover who this person is. You don't just kind of get married and then move on to other interests. And the marriages that we've all seen that are weak, that's what happens. I met you. We got married. I fulfilled that life dream. I have other things I'm interested in now. God is saying that's one of the reasons that relationship with God is like a marriage, like a healthy marriage, is that you become actually growing more and more in your fascination of who they are and the wonderful things about them. God is saying what you need more and more is not God to tell you where to eat lunch tomorrow. You need to know more and more the blessings you have in Jesus. So what are the things he prays for? This is where we'll spend our time. That you would know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So those three things. Paul saying, if you have those three things, you actually have everything you need for life. The first one, the hope to which he's called you. When the word hope is used in the Bible, it's not the way we use it. We study for a test, or we prepare for an interview, um, we diet, we exercise, and we, we hope to do well. We're not sure what's going to happen on the other end when we study for a test, but we hope to do well. It's kind of this, you can be reasonably confident but not sure. You can't guarantee anything. That's not how the Bible uses hope. Paul prays that you would know the sure hope to which God has called you. The sure blessings that are yours because of what Jesus has done for you and secured for you. Is the future guaranteed for you because you're in Christ? This is what Paul says to the church at Colossia. It's the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. He's covered you with his love. He's forgiven you in Jesus. He's secured you for the resurrection. And Paul's saying, I want you to know these are not things you wish for. These are the things you have. And if you know and are confirmed in and growing in your assurance of the things you already do have in Jesus, if that sure hope looms large in our hearts and in our imaginations and in our minds, then it radically, actually very practically changes your life now. The practical implications of this are radical. Because what a sure hope is, one of the things it is, is it's an anxiety killer. Anxiety has no oxygen in the life of somebody who knows their sure hope in Jesus. Because anxiety comes from finding your identity and trying to control the circumstances around you. You're at school, there's a million things you're trying to juggle, and you think, if I can get it all together and get it balanced, life will stop shaking. But it always starts shaking again. 
And even if you get into a season where things seem to seem, uh, seem to appear stable, it's amazing how fragile we are. Right? Maybe you get it lined up for a season. All the circumstances come together. The classes, the relationships, the responsibilities, and all that kind of stuff. And then all you have to do is have your roommate say one thing. And then you just can't get over it. And it plagues you and it's changed your identity. We're so fragile. Life can fall out of balance so quickly. And anxiety comes when we're trying to control those things that will not stay under control because we don't have sovereignty over them. And what, are you need, what I want you all to do is imagine this, is that life is a tightrope and you're trying to manage the shake. And you're trying to avoid the fall. And you're walking across it and it's shaking. And there are seasons of stability, but there's mostly shaking. And here's the reality. This is one of those like annoying things old people say. The older you get, the more out of control things get. Because the older you get, the more people die that you know. And death is the great you don't have control. And so life is walking along this cable and we're trying to figure out how to get control of it. And I used to work these ropes courses when I worked at camps in college. And maybe you've seen this. It's the ropes course where there's a cable and there's two cables on the side and you hold and you just kind of walk across and everything. And what Paul is saying right here in a sense, imagine this, is he's saying, hold on to the work of Jesus at the cross and hold on to the resurrection. That's what actually makes this line walkable. It doesn't mean this line's not going to shake. It means that you will not fall if this line shakes. When you're holding on to Jesus at the cross, the fact that He loves you and He's forgiven you, when you're holding on to the resurrection, that you will be with God in the new heavens and the new earth. You know what that does? It kills anxiety. It's also actually an integrity builder. The more sure you are of the hope you have in Jesus, it actually builds integrity in the lives of God's people. The reason that us, all of us Christians, don't live like Christians is actually because of how, actually how bad we are at imagining the resurrection. The reason that we find ourselves going back to destructive behavior that we hate, that the disgusting feeling of hypocrisy that grosses us out, and we feel that ugliness where we know that the words we say and the way we act are at discord with each other and we're frustrated and we're like, why don't I have the character of Christ? Why am I not growing as a person? Why am I not growing in love? This actually happens because we're not sure of the hope that we have in Christ. And what we need in order to actually become the right person is to become more confident that the resurrection is yours. That Jesus is yours. Here's what I mean. Why do we lie? Why do we cheat on a test? Why do we not tell friends the truth? It's because we're afraid. We don't know who we would be and we're terrified of the consequences if we told the truth. If you know who you are in Jesus and the resurrection is yours, you're not threatened by maybe the little bit of shaking that comes into your life by telling the truth. If you're afraid that shaking is going to destroy you because you don't have anything to hold on to, you know what you do? You don't tell the truth because it makes things hard. The reason we lie is because we're not confident in that. We're not, we're not confident of what we have in Jesus and the stability He offers us. Why do we play at sexuality? Right? Why do we do foolish things with our body in order... We, the reason we do it is in order to feel loved. The kind of... The more that we fear that we're unlovable, the more we're actually going to give our body and our imagination to pornography and to people who we don't love and who don't love us. Just so that we can feel something. So we can feel a little intimacy. Because we don't know the love that we have in Christ. Loved people don't give away or expose themselves. 
loved people don't give away or expose themselves. If we are confirmed, what we need is to know more and more what we have in Jesus. The reason our decisions are self-centered is because we're afraid. I don't know. I've got to do what's best for me. I can't make decisions based on other people's need. I can get there if I have time once I've managed myself. It's because we're afraid, because we don't know what we have in Jesus. Why do we get angry? It's because we're afraid. Fear is the reason we're impatient. The reason we steal is because we're afraid. We're afraid because we're not sure of anything. And so we do things to avoid shaking because we think the shaking is going to kill us. Because we're not holding on to the thing that stabilizes us. That's why Paul says, what I hope you know is that in Jesus you are secured. That, that you are sure that you are forgiven, that the resurrection is yours, that life is yours. It's not a hope, it's not something you wish for, it's what is yours. He also prays this, next thing, I hope you know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Now a lot of times we think about what we receive in Christ, and that's a little bit what we talked about last week and this week already. But Paul has an interesting prayer request right here. I hope you know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. He prays that we would know the riches of His inheritance. Who's God's inheritance? It's kind of an odd prayer request. It's not a request that we would know the things that we inherit in Christ. Paul is saying this, I pray that you would know that God considers you His rich inheritance. The gospel doesn't say simply say that you receive treasures in Jesus. But God also says, I receive a treasure when I receive you. That's one of the great miracles of Christianity. God knows how jacked up we are. He knows how jacked up the church is. And He considers it His great treasure. Knowing not just what you get from Him, but actually knowing that He loves the fact that He gets you. It changes everything. And it's exactly what Toy Story 1 is about. I'm sure you all thought the same thing when you saw it. What's the difference between Buzz Lightyear and Woody? When you first meet him, Buzz's whole identity is built around his sense of self, his strength, his confidence, and his bravado. And it's silly because he's a toy. And so we laugh at him. And as he comes to grips with his own limitations and with the reality that his image of himself is kind of ridiculously inflated, it's an inflated fantasy, that he's really just a toy, he comes undone. He's trying to craft his identity. He's trying to establish who he is, believe into this kind of fantasy lie about who he is. What about Woody, on the other hand? Knows he's a toy, understands that he's fragile, that he has limitations. So where does that identity come from for him? It comes from the name written on the bottom of his foot, that he's Andy's. He knows who he is because he knows whose he is. So Buzz is trying to craft a sense of self. So life is this kind of angst-ridden race in which he actually chooses to believe lies about who he is. For Woody, life is a playground because he knows whose he is. He knows that he's Andy's. Paul wants you to know you're God's inheritance. That's your identity. And this reorients the way we go about life. You'll actually do the same things this, uh, the rest of this evening. Tomorrow you'll go to class, you'll interact with friends, you'll go on dates, you'll go to lunch, you'll go camping. But you'll actually do it from a totally different perspective and for totally different reasons. If you actually know that you are God's, then your identity is established. 
And life is not a place that you go and find and craft an identity and seek identity out of. Life's a playground, so you should explore, and you should have fun, and you should build stuff, and you should love people, and you should go camping, and you should stop being afraid of what you're missing out on, and just be where you are. And you should stop overcommitting and just be where you are. You're God's inheritance. You're God's inheritance. And part of what that means, and this is freedom, don't think so highly of your dreams, don't think so highly of your time, and don't think so highly of your pursuits. Those things are simply fun spheres that you get to live in that are actually God's gift to you. But if you don't see them as fun spheres that you get to live in, but instead see, those are the places I've got to go craft my identity, life is going to be a terror for you. And we all already feel that terror because we're still doing that to some degree. You'll only be able to soberly engage life if you grow in the knowledge that you are God's. I actually have in these notes, you're not a space ranger, but then Emily's here tonight. She actually might be a space ranger <laughs> or on her way to being a space ranger. The rest of y'all are not space rangers. <laughs> y'all are toys, and I'm a toy. And we're gods. And here's a brief side application is this. is the lesson from Toy Story 2, right? <laughs> we're not getting to three tonight. Uh, Woody likes to have Andy's name written on his foot. And in Toy Story 2, it gets painted over. I don't know if y'all remember this. And, uh, and he gets a little lost when Andy's name is painted over on his foot. And he loses a sense of who he is. And part of what they're communicating is this. It's a reassuring thing to have a sign of ownership upon you. And that's actually what baptism is. And if you're in Jesus, it is a good thing to have God's name written on you. It is a good, Woody looks to that footprint to understand who he is. It's a reminder for him. And if you are baptized, you should look back at your baptism and say, this, this is what it means when, it says, when we're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're baptized into His name. If you're getting into this Christianity thing and you've trusted in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, it is a sweet thing to have God stamp His name on you. So I'd encourage you to consider that. You can talk to me about that. Um, it's a beautiful thing. That's my other thing I can't ever leave alone from Toy Story. But it's another thing that also says you're God's. And Paul says, I want you to know that you're God's. And if you're not baptized, I want you, to God, to put his name on you so that you, it's another thing you can look at and say, I know that I'm God's. He put his name on me. So I want you to know the hope to which he's called you. I want you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance. And here's the other one. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? He prays that they would know the power of God that they have in Christ. And not just power. That last week, Texas A&M uh, RUF was here, and I was talking to the campus minister, and he did this series a couple of weeks ago, and he's like, you've got to look at the Greek in Ephesians. That phrase, the immeasurable greatness of his power, is actually the uber... Uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher the Greek. I did study it in seminary. I've forgotten most of it. But y'all be impressed for a little bit. Um, uber ballon megathos dunamis of God. And ben, if y'all met Ben Haley last week, the campus minister from Texas A&M, he's got a deep southern accent. And he's like, dude, it's the uber-mega-dynamite of God. <laughs> but that's actually the Greek roots. The uber-megathos-dunamis of God. Those are the Greek roots for the English words. Uber-mega-dynamite of God. So Paul wants you to know the uber-mega-dynamite of God. And verse... 21 clarifies by way of comparison it's power that's greater than any other power or authority or dominion it's more powerful than anything else and when you talk about the power of God there's mystery in that so I want to talk about it for a minute 
And the first thing we have to talk about is what is the most powerful thing, the most powerful tool that sin and evil has? It's the biggest power that all of humanity gathered together against it all throughout history, all of our ingenuity, all of our wealth, all of our creativity, all of our drive, all of our innovation. We have been 100% unsuccessful against this power. It is the one thing humanity has never defeated. And it's sin's greatest power, and it's death itself. We're O for billions against O for trillions, whatever it is, against death. Stanford, guess what, is O for however many Stanford graduates against death. And will not defeat it. The system is broken, and death is coming to all of us. And that's why he cites the resurrection of Jesus when he starts talking about the power. He says, if you want one picture of the proof of, proof of the kind of power that God has, that you have in Christ, He has the power to defeat the only thing humanity has never been able to defeat. Death itself. That's the greatest display of His power. And if death couldn't constrain Him, what could? This is the power of Christ that is yours. That kind of power. And that's why even the Bible says, even Paul says in his letter to uh, the church at Corinth, that if the real historical resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity is a waste of time. But if it did happen, it changes everything. Because if two, over, around 2,000 years ago, if a 33-year-old Jewish guy defeated death, everybody has to deal with that historical fact. You can't let that go. If that really happened, you've got to deal with it. And Paul says that death-defeating power is yours. Now, here's the big question. Sounds cool. Okay, so there's power in being in Jesus. I would love that. Why do I not feel power in my life as a Christian? Right? Why, why does there not seem to be power here? Uber, mega, dynamite. That sounds cool. That's not exactly how I explained my experience of the power of God. Right? And in one sense, when you think of it like this, the power actually is yours. You actually do have it. But it's a little bit like this. God's kind of placed a huge balance in your checking account, and you've just never drawn on it, or you've drawn, or we've drawn very little from it. There's a balance there. There's a huge an account that's in your name, the power of God, but we don't know how to draw on it. So how? How do we draw on the power of God? And I'm going to just, I'm going to throw out a couple examples, but this could go on all night. Here's the first one. If you want to experience the power of God, rest. Put down all your labors for one entire day, once a week. Trust God by resting. Say, God, I have hope in Jesus. I am yours. Therefore, I'm okay if I actually put down all my labors for one day a week and rest and gather with God's people. And now you're wondering, okay, that doesn't feel like a powerful spiritual experience of God. Okay, here's what you're doing. Do you know the powers that you battle against most often every day? Comparison. Perfectionism. This achievement-oriented lifestyle, materialism, consumerism. The power y'all are fighting against is not North Korea. So you don't need to think, well, does God give me the power to defeat North Korea? That's not the power you're fighting. The power that you feel powerless against is perfectionism. Stop working for a day. Flick off perfectionism. And here's what will happen. You're going to be afraid coming into it that if I don't work for an entire day, once a week, in perpetuity then it'll get me. Stanford will get me. I'll lose somehow. Here's what will happen if you rest one day a week. You'll feel that fear. You'll have a great day once a week. And you'll wake up on Monday morning and you'll find out you're still alive. You're actually slightly happier and rested. 
And you know what you'll have done? You'll have defeated the power of perfectionism. Are you willing to draw on the power of God? It's very practical. This is just one example. Rest. Here's another one. Love your enemy. These things are kind of like... I think of them a little bit about the way my older brother asked my dad about getting married. He wasn't sure if he should marry this girl. They did end up marrying. And they had all the conversations with... uh, I had all these conversations with my dad. Am I sure? What do I do? How do I know if she's the right one? That's where it came down to. And my dad finally said, just try it. <laughs> Here's my challenge to you. Love your enemy. I don't know if I can do that. Try it. The person who stole your idea, the person who harmed your reputation, the person that pisses you off, go and do something for their well-being. Have you tried it? I think in Christ you'll be able to do it. I think what's holding us back is not that the power of God's not there. It's that we're afraid to go and try it. Get over your fear. You have the power in Christ to go do it. Go love your enemy. Here's another one. Confess sin. Right? One of the most overwhelming powers that has a grip on us is the fear of people finding out who we are. Who we really are. Right? We don't want to engage the Bible in what sin really is. It's going to cost us some important areas in our life. Speak your sin to a brother and sister in Christ in confession. Name it. The bad ones. The dark ones. The shameful ones. You expose them to the light of the gospel and they will start to wither. We're all afraid of calling sin, sin. And I'm more convinced that the reason that we feel very little power of God in our life and also then go try to seek to have powerful experience in other areas than simply just believing the gospel more deeply, it's actually because we don't confess sin. We don't say, there's, there's profound arrogance in me. I walk into a room and I evaluate everybody and I make decisions of how I'm going to relate to them and who I'm not going to relate to because I'm going to judge their appearances. All of us did that tonight. None of us wants to say that's in our heart. All of us did that. My arrogance is sin. My anger is sin. Our sexual immorality is sin. The way we feel about our roommates is sin. Our pride is sin. Our indifference to the pain of others is sin. We don't want to say what's really in our hearts. We don't want the Bible to actually diagnose, diagnose us all the way down. And if, if you confess little sin and ask for a little forgiveness, you're going to experience a little bit of the power of God. If you want to experience a lot of the power of God... Let the Bible diagnose you all the way down. Confess the deep in our sins and hear the good news. The power of God is yours. We're just afraid to draw on it. Those are just samplings. Paul is saying what you need, my prayer for you, is that you would know more deeply the hope that you have in Jesus. That you are God's inheritance and that the power of Christ is in you. I'll close with this. I remember, I didn't understand this phrase until this week studying this text. I remember years ago our pastor in South Carolina said, Christians often spend a lot of time praying about things they should go ahead and do and doing a bunch of things they need to stop and pray about. It's like one of those like Hobbit kind of sentences, you know. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Like I like half of you half as much as I should. No? Yes. Exposing my Hobbit nerd. But um, let me read it again. Christians often spend a lot of time praying about things they should go ahead and do and doing a bunch of things they need to stop and pray about. Didn't understand. I remembered it. It stuck in my mind. I didn't understand it until I studied this text this week. Our prayers are often 
filled with, and this is not altogether wrong, but this is often the bulk of our prayers. God, help me figure out my money situation. Help me do better on this test. Help me get A's. Help me find a significant other. Help me get this internship. Help me get along with my roommate. It's okay to pray for those things. But those are often the things that we pray about the most. And in one sense, there's actually very simple answers to a lot of those. So, if you, if you have money problems, right, you should pray to God and lift that up to Him. How am I going to make these bills meet? Okay, but here's what you need to do. Get a job. Okay? If you want to get A's, that's fine. Pray to God about A's. But I can also tell you, here's what you need to do. Study. So if you want to get an internship, pray to God, that's fine. But here's what you need to do. You need to practice your interviews. You need to get the appropriate connections. And you need to look good at your interview, by the way. That's mostly for the guys. Girls, I know you all be fine in interviews. But guys, collars, ties, I don't care at Silicon Valley. Anyways, (laughs) I want to get along with my roommate. Okay, pray about it. That's fine. Go and say, I'm sorry to your roommate. It's fine to pray for those things. But in a lot of ways, we're avoiding the obvious things you need to go ahead and do. And we're holding back and just praying all the time and thinking God's magically going to make money happen in our bank account or magically going to give us A's even though we didn't study. Right? But then we often try to do a lot of things, on the other hand, that we need to stop and spend a lot of time praying about. Being a better Christian. Right? This quarter I'm going to be a better Christian. I'm going to go to like 11 campus ministries. I'm going to go on 14 missions trips. Right? I'm going to do. I'm going to join 14 small groups. I'm going to walk down the hall and knock on the door of everybody in the hall and talk to them about Jesus. Right? I'm going to be a better Christian. I'm going to celebrate um, the joy of God's inheritance. I'm going to access the power of the gospel. So this week I'm not going to stress. This week I'm not going to drink too much. I'm going to work at being a Christian. And here's the thing. That, that's, again, that's fine. But it's funny. We often work at trying to be a better Christian and then pray at trying to get kind of these circumstances in life managed. You can manage your circumstances in your life. You went to Stanford. You're fine. You know how to get an internship. You know how to get an A. You actually even know how to get along with your roommate. You just say, I'm sorry. Pray about those, but the action items are pretty obvious. But what you are, on the other hand, what we're doing is we're all signing up to be a better Christian. And that's actually what, instead of signing up for many things, you need to stop and pray about. That you would know the hope you have in Christ, that you're God's inheritance, the power that you have in Christ. And the main way, the joy of the hope you have, God's inheritance and the power, the main way, the experience of God's love for you, the joy of the gospel is going to seep into your life and change you, is through the one thing we don't do. Pray. Long, pray hard, pray through Scripture until the words you're reading become the meditations of your heart and they go down into you and they start to define you. That's going to have more to do with you being a better Christian than signing up for another thing. Let's do that now. Father God, we come to you in prayer. It's something we don't, I don't do as much as I wish I did and I know none of us do. I pray that prayer would become a sweet enterprise for us, that we would have time to do it, that we would find you in it, that we would find your scripture, your word to be a good guide, and that in so doing, we would be assured of the hope we have in Jesus. We would find the joy of knowing we're your inheritance, and dear God, we would access the power that we have in Christ. Thank you for all these things. In your name we pray. Amen.